You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. This is the second of a two-part interview we conducted with Colonel Matt Hardman about some of his combat experiences. The first episode, focusing on company command in 2004 during Operation Iraqi Freedom, is already available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss that first episode. Thanks again for listening. That was your company command tour. You went on to battalion command, you went on to other assignments. Did you wind up going back to Babel? Did you go back to Iraq? Uh, went, uh, did, uh, after teaching at West Point, I uh, did a deployment to uh, Afghanistan 2010-11 up in Regional Command North, and then as a brigade chops, and then in 2013 as a brigade XO uh, to Ghazni province. Commanded a battalion up in Alaska. Didn't deploy uh, out of there. Uh, did a taught or went uh, did two years at the National Training Center as a task force senior, and then did a, a fellowship at Harvard for a year. And then I did what uh, I like to call the Harvard Study Abroad program by doing a year in Baghdad. Um, so went and worked at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad in 2019 and 2020 um, at which was just a different experience. And I was working in the Security Cooperation Office there as the chief of staff for the Office of Security Cooperation Iraq. And so that was a, you know, a different experience because uh, it was on a government passport, war civilian clothes most of the time. Worked a lot with uh, the team over at uh, OIR. Lieutenant General White was the CG there, phenomenal. But really my first, obviously, experience working at an embassy. Uh, and it was it was interesting times. It was there for the... Uh, you know, the, the protests in the fall of 2019 and, and that whole time period was was tense. They'd done an order departure at the embassy, so the manning at the embassy was really tight. The security was very tight. Pretty consistent indirect fire across the area of operations and pretty regularly with the, with the embassy and with Union 3 there. And then uh, was actually out on leave when the uh, attack happened uh, at the U.S. Embassy on, on New Year's Eve. Was supposed to fly back uh, the next day. Um, ended up changing my plans, met up with one of my teammates in uh, London, and then we were making our way uh, back into Iraq. Uh, as that was happening, the Soleimani strike uh, occurred, and then um, was in a was in a jetliner over 
uh, Iraq when the TBM strike happened. Uh, landed in Doha, took out my phone, and my phone had you know was blown up with all these alerts and warnings. That was my government phone, and so we made our way to uh, to uh, Jordan, and then uh, and then finally got back in uh, to Baghdad and to the embassy. But it was uh, it was definitely interesting times there, and Iraq was completely different. So I was chief of staff, but I also was dual hatted for a little while as the um, uh, advisor to the Ministry of Defense. So. Uh, met pretty regularly with the chief of defense as well as the uh, the minister of defense there. It was an interesting time to be in Iraq, to say the least. That transition from company-grade leadership to field-grade and senior field-grade staff, what did you take from company command in, in your lieutenant days? So I think the... F- you know the the first and 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 it's really kind of the the debt that you owe right so i think the first thing is like i had great role models i mean you know i i served for and with some people um a handful that maybe weren't phenomenal but by and large like the majors that i had when i was a lieutenant and captain you know inspired me um and were phenomenal role models of officership and so I had people to look up to that had mentored me, that had developed me, that had invested in me, that showed me some pathways to, to I think, what right looked like. You know, I think that's important, right? And so I took, I took away from that, like, I have an obligation as a field grade officer to do what other people had done for me. And so it's, it's just been very important to me as a, as a field grade officer and a senior field grade officer to invest in other people. Um, people did it for me, and if I don't do that, then some, I'm, I'm – you know, I'm some kind of jerk, and and so that was I, th- I would say the first thing. You know, I would I would the the second would be you know an appreciation of this is just a hard life. I mean, there's um, there's no getting around it. And you know, if at some point you don't become a student of the Stoics, you might be in the wrong line of work uh, doing what we do. This is a hard life, um, and it's. And, and the secret, at least for me, is that you, you got to be able to appreciate the people that you're with and, you know, have a good time doing being in not awesome places, um, really based on the comradeship of the folks that you're around. My time teaching here or my time in graduate school, you know, it came at the right time for me. It was it it, it forced me to really pick up my head and look around and imbued much, you know, important humility, you know, an appreciation for complexity that, um, you know, that sometimes there aren't good answers. There's just, you know, choices between least bad answers. It gave me um, a lot of more empathy, especially teaching did, um, you know, watching people from, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds, uh, you know, struggle with material or life. And so, you know, all those things, I think, help prepare me to, to be a field grade officer. And you know, I didn't come at it all at once. You know, a lot of these things I've had to grow in over time. But, you know, th- I think those experiences, the mentors and then the experiences uh, that I had, you know, as teaching, I think helped prepare me. Because you spend so much of your time as a field grade officer teaching. I certainly found that to be true as a major absolutely true as a battalion commander and as a brigade commander and, and the current job man i mean you're you're just constantly having to teach and and it's great i mean if you like teaching it's that's an awesome part of it but i think you know you, you know we talk you know good field grade officers uh, build and maintain systems but you've got to develop people 
to run those systems, you know, and, and to operate, or, or you're you're going to be overwhelmed as a field grade officer. So I think that the, those are the things that probably impacted me as a field grade, and that I took as a, from being a company grade. You wind up as a brigade commander in Tenth Mountain. Climb to glory. What guidance did you receive? What expectation did you have that you were going to deploy again? So, uh, you know, took took brigade command right after coming out of Iraq in 2020. And uh, part of the division headquarters was forward. Uh, Mountain 6, General Menace at the time, you know, was forward. Uh, General Funk who was the DCGO. He'd been a battalion commander. I was a brigade XO. I mean, phenomenal person and leader. You know, there, there were indications that we would likely backfill um, you know, elements from the 10th Mountain Division that were forward uh, in Afghanistan in, in late 2021. But, the, you know, frankly, at this point, like the policy uh, was uncertain of, of what we were going to have and how much. And so we're, we're on a pathway to, to, to go to the, do our Joint Readiness Training Center rotation in the spring of 2021. You know, so very focused on on that. Took command during COVID. Two hurricanes hit uh, Fort Fort Polk uh, in quick succession right after I took command. Of my three priorities, training was the third. The first was good order and discipline of the formation, and also in the context of what had happened at Fort Hood and Specialist uh, Gillian, and especially also with what had happened. You know, I think with COVID is like really ingraining standards and discipline into the formation, and you know, that's tough love, but it's love. That became apparent to me that was something that, that really required a lot of attention to get right. An atrophy of diligence, I think, had somewhat occurred, at least in, in, uh, in that unit at that time, and understandably based on you know, COVID and what had happened. And then the second was doing basic personnel, equipment, uh, and maintenance stuff. The, before I'd taken command, the brigade had been deployed at the southwest border. Uh, then COVID hits. And there was just, again, this atrophy of diligence with doing, I think, very basic fundamental things that were important. And, you know, in my view, if those two things weren't right, there's no way that you're going to do high fidelity training. And so, um, you know, initially it was like, let's get these things right. Let's put a lot of emphasis and energy on that. Let's do the leader development that sets the conditions for us to, to train. Um, we're able to do that. And, um, you know, division resourced us with some great training events and got us ready for, for our rotation at JRTC. And, and then we went through our rotation, which was a phenomenal experience. And anybody that's been there, it's like getting hit in the face with a baseball bat. And when you're not being hit in the face with a baseball bat, it's because the baseball bat's in a backswing. And you're just getting pounded every single day. But you're, you're doing complex problem solving under high stress at at many echelons, but particularly the brigade and the battalion level. We, it looked like we were going to send a battalion uh, and we had them set aside and earmarked. And then we got word that we, we might be deploying part of the brigade headquarters to augment uh, U.S. forces Afghanistan. And then, you know, some, some of that sort of died off. And then it was like, okay, pack and you're, and you're going. And we, we, had, uh, we had about two weeks uh, notice. And then um, you know we're able to get folks about a week of leave, and then uh, pack out and go. And the first element that went out the door was uh, out of the headquarters element, and so it was uh, my call sign was Patriot Six. So it was P Six and uh, sixty one of his closest friends was the uh, group chat as we went out and uh, went forward uh, to Afghanistan and arrived there. Uh, stopped in Qatar, uh, which was pretty important. Ended up getting a pretty good intel read before going in, and then. Uh, uh, arrived in Afghanistan 18 July of uh, of 2021. 
When you landed in Afghanistan, what was the guidance you received from US4A, from the other elements in your left and right? Yeah, so, um, you know, at this point, you know, we're doing two things kind of simultaneously. So on one hand, we're reorganizing, the headquarters is being reorganized from, you know, RS uh, headquarters to US4A headquarters. And so going from a four-star headquarters to a two-star headquarters, I was dual-hatted forward as uh, the security assurance force commander. So I had command authority over uh, a rifle company, air defense, counter-mortar, CRAM uh, battery, an aviation task force, uh, and then some other, you know, support logistics uh, type elements, pretty small, about 400 folks. Um, so I had that responsibility and I was dual-hatted as a chief of staff for US4A. And it became very apparent to me that where most of my energy and effort needed to be was actually on the chief of staff role. Um, because you know the reorganization of this headquarters coupled with continuing the retrograde of equipment but it also became apparent that you know we had to be keeping an eye on what what might be required of us uh, in terms of you know a, wet, a retrograde or withdrawal uh, at that point so you know really capable team of folks forward but but frankly it was kind of all thrown together at the last minute, but some really, really capable people and, and working for uh, Admiral Vaisley, um, who, had, who had just taken over um, uh, the US-4A mission uh, from Joe Miller. As the security situation in Afghanistan continues to deteriorate, provincial capitals are falling, regional capitals are falling, what guidance did you give and what were your feelings, right? Having been there in 2003 to come back and now have to say, it's time to go. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the I mean, the decisions obviously about, you know, withdrawal and, and what all that means. I mean, that, you know, these are being made at the highest like policy levels. You know, our role was obviously really to inform of what we're seeing on the ground, you know, our assessment. And, and you know, obviously there's assessments coming from other uh, agencies in the government. But, you know, we're, we were meeting with uh, um, Afghan, you know, leaders, and they're trying to get, you know, cobble together a plan there. And, you know, it, it just, it became apparent that, uh, you know, that they couldn't pull it together. You know, and I think for a whole host of reasons, you know, and I think the Afghan politics were, were a huge part of it. Uh, they couldn't prioritize. And so as things, you know, deteriorated uh, and they have scarce, you know, their own resources are, are scarce, you know, they, they're spreading them everywhere. You know, and, and the ultimate, uh, you know, defeat mechanism is hard to pinpoint, but you know, it was pretty obvious that it was deteriorating and when it, it it almost went like an avalanche, like all it took was the last bit of snow to kind of fall. Yeah, it was that part of it was hard. Now, what you know, what was I feeling? You know, I think number one is like this, obviously, just a profound sense of responsibility. Um, you know, that you know, and I just felt incredibly responsible for for all the folks that we had there, and um, you know, and. <laughs> making sure that we were doing everything possible to, to put people in place uh, that we could be safe, um, whatever the course of action was going forward, whether we were staying or, or withdrawing. We're one a lot of us. <laughs> 
you know, there uh, in the end of July and August. And then, you know, a lot of planning on all the contingencies uh, that were out there. And so, you know, as time went on, particularly early August, uh, I had I had the rest of ele- I had elements from the brigade flown into Kuwait uh, over the horizon, two infantry battalions, um, had a company that was coming in, supposed to be replacing a company from uh, 431 Polar Bears out of 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain. And uh, I pulled the battalion commander from the Polar Bears from Kuwait back to Ku- uh, back to Afghanistan. I was like, I need, I need somebody to help help me with the security part of this. And that was the only that was the only uh, security element on the ground from Department of Defense was a rifle company from 431 out of the 10th Mount Division. That was the only ground maneuver unit in Afghanistan um, in early August. And so, um, you know, other elements from 515 from the, the JTF come forward, but but not rifle companies at that point. And uh, so uh, Chris came back. We were still on track to do the relief in place. And so I, I brought the, the rifle company from uh, Alpha Company 230 forward. And uh, they'd actually been dreed up to uh, Wisconsin. And so I called the battalion commander in uh, Wisconsin and said, hey, man, you need to get your company back to Poke and you get out the door to Kuwait. And I need you to get on an airplane and get over here. And so he did. But that allowed us to, to start doing a transition, it allowed him to gain situational awareness of what was happening uh, on the ground in Afghanistan in early uh, August. Then the rifle camp- company came forward. And as we were transitioning, it became... Um, it became apparent to me that we we're going to need both companies. Um, and so I went to Admiral Vaisley and he approved it. And so we were fortunate. We had two battalion commanders with really tax and then uh, two rifle companies on the ground. And so we put one at the embassy and one at H. Kaya. And uh, polar bears were at H. Kaya and wild boars, 230 infantry, were, were at the embassy. And then, fi- and then 515, we were starting to flow in some marine companies to augment the security at that point as well and then the you know the circumstances on the ground changed pretty rapidly at h kaya the airport the airfield itself gets overrun by civilians they get pushed back there's the abbey gate bombing yeah and there's the eventual withdrawal when you got back to polk what did you tell your soldiers so fortunately we went back to to kuwait we went to kuwait uh, we assumed the contingency response force for central command and we had about two months there. And so we consolidated, reorganized, uh, assumed a new mission. Other elements from the brigade, uh, 2-4 infantry had actually done the temporary safe havens in Qatar and Kuwait and the rest of 230 had done that as well. And so there was a, the first thing I did when I left Afghanistan, uh, you know, I, I, I landed in Kuwait, I got on a plane, uh, like six hours later, and I flew to Qatar, and I linked up with my battalion commander that was there, uh, Matt Strand, and they had taken the temporary safe Asian mission. Um, off a uh, verbal from me, he had gone down to the airfield. Australians provided two C-130 seats out around the 17th of August, and he flew with attack and a rifle company to Qatar and augmented the temporary safe Asian mission there. We talked mission command, Matt, get to get to Qatar, help fix the problem there, and he did. And so I walk in, the scout platoon sergeant, staff sergeant Hoffman, is sitting down with a picture book and thirty Afghan kids around him, and I, um, 
I, I couldn't have been more proud. I mean, that part of it, and it was incredibly cathartic because uh, obviously the experience at HKIA had been had been pretty traumatic. And um, but this is the far side of it, and um, I was incredibly proud. And you know, I personally think the American people should be incredibly proud of the first impression that we made as Americans. You know with with these folks living through a, a hugely traumatic event for them you know leaving fam- family friends their homes and the you know and i saw this the marines at the eec at hkia too just the decency um with which you know young airmen soldiers sailors marines treated these people in hardship uh, made me incredibly proud to be in the service and incredibly proud to be an american and that's what i encountered and, and it's what i needed uh, honestly, because I, I was, I mean, after Abbeygate, after, you know, the airfield, you know, some good in what was obviously, you know, a, a tragic event. And so I spent a couple hours there with them. And then I actually went and and um, we thought we would be with US4A for a little longer. And within within a couple days, like we were we were detached from US4A. And given the the quick the contingency response force mission, but I went up and I saw Admiral Vaisley and, and uh, uh, Brigadier General Day, a, a UK one star that was there, and uh, I brought that team down uh, to the temporary safe havens because I, I I felt like people that had kind of been through this hard experience they needed to see this, they needed to see that there were young people in particular and young families that were going to have a, a different and a better life because of of their hard work and frankly the sacrifices of the 13 service members at Abbeygate. And so, you know, we went from um, a very small portion of the brigade went forward, you know, had been forward, pro- probably 250 people, 300 people total from the brigade had gone forward to Afghanistan. Uh, and then others had, had worked, you know, this temporary safe haven mission in Qatar and Kuwait, which is also traumatic. And I think we were fortunate to be in Kuwait, you know, captive audience, obviously not awesome being away from your family, but a chance uh, to let people uh, sit down with behavioral health. Uh, sit down with our chaplains, uh, sit down with their leaders. Their leaders really getting to sp- spend a lot of time with them. We did basic army training stuff to you know build a sense of normalcy in what we're doing. A lot of PT, uh, a lot of sports, a lot of small unit training. And, and we had a couple months to kind of decompress from this uh, experience. You know, I, I um, back to the experience I had as a company commander and things I felt like I'd maybe gotten right and things I'd gotten wrong uh, bringing a unit back things I'd gotten wrong personally uh, with dealing with trauma. I sat down with the behavioral health provider from the brigade within a couple of days of being back in Kuwait. And, uh, you know, it was awkward. I mean, I love her to death. She works, you know, she's a captain. And and it was uh, it was a little awkward, but it was good. You know, it was ultimately it was cathartic. Um, you know, General uh, Clark, the arsenic commander, asked, asked uh, me to come down and kind of give the the AR what had happened um, to him. And uh, that was incredibly cathartic to be able to do that. And so, you know, I took from that, you know, I, I talked to everybody that went forward uh, to Afghanistan um, in small groups. And I was like, hey, you need to talk to somebody. And maybe that's your chaplain. Maybe it's a behavioral health provider. I've talked to both and I'm talking to mentors, you know, but you got to talk to somebody about this stuff. You got to unpack it, you know, also that there's no normative response to any of this. Like there's people that are going to be completely fine that it, it's like, yeah, that was a really 
surreal event, but I'm okay. And then, you know, there's people that are having these are going to have a hard time and there's no normal response. And so don't feel like there's something wrong with you if you're not, if you're having a response that's different than other people. And I, I do think it gave a chance for a lot of those folks to decompress from this experience, to process it and process it in a way that they had a support network around them. You know, we saw, we had, you know, all of our medics, uh, you know, we, we had two female medics that had each been handed at least a dozen dead children. Um, you know, Afghans, uh, kids crushed in the crowd and the crowd would hand, you know, their dead over to, uh, to our female medics. And, um, you know, and they were gutted uh, by that experience. And, um, you know, they felt... Uh, really um traumatized you know being awarded um combat medical badges uh you know felt uh terrible about that but you know what i tried to convey to them is they carried a burden for the american people and they represented the american people in a way that's in you know with grace and dignity uh in a way uh you know i think frankly that brings credit to america and that and that I mean, I can't imagine losing my kids and that people that lost their children trusted them enough to care for them. I think uh, speaks volumes about, you know, the young soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines that were fortunate enough to get a lead. Your career spanned pre-GWAT, the global war on terror, operations in Afghanistan, operations in Iraq, for the junior and aspiring leaders. What's the one key takeaway? Uh, be a good dude. Be a good dude. Uh, you know, lean into helping other people. Uh, be quick to apologize when you make mistakes. Be quick to forgive uh, when people, you perceive people have affronted you. When you have an opportunity to, to lighten somebody else's load, like pick something up and carry it on their behalf. You know, love the people around you. You don't know how long they're going to be around you. You know, that, that mantra of rule number one, be a good dude. You know, young men and women, they, they need each other to, you know, to support each other. And, you know, I think you just got to be a great teammate. You got to be a good follower. Uh, be empathetic to your boss. Most of, uh, I've gotten a lot better at that in my career. The vast, vast majority of people are getting up every single day and want to do great things for America and want to do great things for America's sons and daughters. You know, as a colonel, I'm not getting it right all the time. Um, what I have appreciated is, you know, the captains I've had out there that supported me, that that called me out, but in a polite and professional way. Maybe when I was I was, you know, off. Um, you know, be a good follower, be a good teammate. Um, you know, and then ultimately, you gotta lead with love. You gotta love your soldiers, every last one of them. You know, the the soldier that you know gets the DUI and and gets in all kinds of trouble, and you're separating out of the army. Well, you still got to love them. They're yours. You know, the way we treat people, it's it, it's what it says about us as human beings, not necessarily the other way around. Uh, you never know, I think, by that example of how you treat people, uh, you can change somebody's life. Uh, whether it's the individual that, you know, maybe hadn't done awesome things, um, but if you treat them with dignity and respect and you truly love them, even though you're going to hold them accountable, 
which I think is another important part of this. Like you gotta, you gotta, it's gotta be grown up love. You gotta hold people accountable, but the way you treat them may change the way that they lead, you know, they live their life. I mean, you think Jean Valjean and the priest and Les Mis, right? But other people are watching and they're going to see that. And if you treat people uh, as lesser, just because they've made a mistake, other people are going to see that. and They're not going to want to serve in this great organization. And so and that's what I tell folks, like, you know, Try just try to every day be a great person, and you're gonna fail some days, and you're gonna come up short some days. But it, you know, it's it's a pretty good way to go through life. It's a pretty enjoyable way to go through life, and you'll value the people around you. And um, you know, the second part of this is like, don't overthink your career. You know, at the end of the day, to find success for yourself, and it probably shouldn't be a position or a rank. Um, it probably should be something that you have control over. Right. You know, for me personally, like success is making the people that I serve around and the organizations I serve in better being a good husband and father. Uh, That's success for me. You know, I I came to that uh, a hot minute ago and it means that, you know, I get up every day and I have control over my own happiness um, versus externalizing my happiness to other people. Matt, thanks for being here today. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.